Welcome to Taiwan Talk. This week, I have the honor of speaking with the very funny Brian Zhang from the Night Night Show. Listen in as he tells me about giving up neuroscience, his life as a stand-up comedian, and the work that goes into producing a weekly political satire. So, how did you get into stand-up comedy? I started off when I was in college, and I would just try to go to the open mics. I'm talking about Mandarin open mics. I first started doing comedy. In Chinese, and it didn't go really well because people always thought my jokes were too English. What do you mean by that? They thought it sounded translated. I think grammatically it doesn't fit with the Chinese language. Can you give me an example? So one of my jokes is, don't you think that the girls in Taiwan look a lot younger than they actually are? Like a girl that looks like she's in middle school could actually be in her thirties. So so that is like grammatically an English joke. You can't really translate that into Chinese unless you turn it into two sentences. But once it's turned into two sentences, it kind of takes away the power of the joke. When you create jokes, do you try to make sure they're A sentence long, or do you time the jokes so that a specific joke will maybe be two sentences, or another joke will be one sentence? Is that all factored into coming up with your routine? Yeah, I tend to open with shorter jokes, and then the longer jokes come in maybe the middle of the set, and then longer and longer stories towards the end. But I'm not a storytelling kind of comic, so my longest jokes only go up to maybe a minute or a minute and a half. I've noticed that you were just put in all the news recently, saying that you were bringing American-style stand-up to Taiwan for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to know the difference between Mandarin speaking and English speaking, and which one is more difficult to do or to master. I think for me, there are two barriers. The first barrier is the language barrier, obviously, because English is sort of a native tongue, but I don't really consider it to be my native tongue. I still think that my mother tongue is Mandarin. So when I'm trying to come up with jokes, I'm imitating people. I'm trying to learn from all the specials and all the stand-up sets I see online. In Mandarin, the difficulty comes because there's no one to imitate, really, because stand-up is really new and. There's no one you can imitate. How has your audience been responsive to you kind of changing the game a little bit here? When I started off, a lot of people say that my English sets are better; they're more funny. I think I really have two different personas when I perform in two different languages. In English, I'm much more held back and cool and just a normal person. But in Chinese, I tend to do a lot of exaggerated act outs, and I think that's because I sort of catered to. What the audience responds to in the early phase of my quote-unquote career. So when I first started doing stand-up in Mandarin, I would use the same persona, which is more of a dry humor, and people didn't respond to that. So I started adding more and more acting into my act, and that's when I started getting laughs. So right now, up to this point, I'm really two different people performing in two different languages. I have concluded that there's two things that almost always work in Mandarin. And the first one is any kind of acting. Like imitation works best. If you're imitating some famous character, that's always going to get a laugh, no matter if you're doing a good or bad imitation. And then the second one is a very straight and direct comeback, kind of like this. It's called tu tao, and people really love that. So, for example, you could take an English joke, and it works as a one-liner, pure observational comedy. It doesn't work in Chinese, and the example I always like to use is: Have you ever wondered why the kamikaze still have to buy helmets in Chinese? If you just put that out, people don't respond, and then you have to add that dislike. They're You're dying already. Su- okay, okay. Very straightforward. Stand-up comedy and the whole comedy industry in Taiwan right now is sort of at an infant stage. So it's growing. It's learning how to walk. Seeing a show live is. 
also very different from seeing it online. If you're interested, you're more than welcome to come to our shows. There's a lot of shows, a lot of open mics all around Taipei. You can check that out by Googling, I guess. And um, don't be too harsh. You're just trying to have fun. I think the most ironic thing that I found is how much hate stems from comedy. From a group of people trying to make other people laugh, how much anger comes from that same group of people? It's kind of ironic. I don't know. I think people who get angry at people not being funny is a big joke in and of itself. Because like, if people are not funny, they're just not funny. That's supposed to be funny. You're not supposed to be angry about that. So if you don't find the shows or the online videos funny, then just move on. I mean, there are other people that are funny out there. So I heard you were a neuroscience major. Yeah. In the UK. Yeah. And at the Sorbonne. As well. Yeah, both. And what made you change from neuroscience to stand-up comedy? Nothing much. I mean, I came back to Taiwan thinking that I was going to apply for a PhD. So in my mind, I was like, okay, I'm going to take a year to take all the exams, like TOEFL, GRE, and whatever it takes to get a PhD. So that's going to probably take a year. During this year, I'm going to get a job and I'm going to do whatever I want apart from the job. It was that year that I started doing stand-up, and then for some weird reason, I didn't apply for a PhD anymore. And then it's just I don't know fate or whatever you want to call it that I start, stumbled into this business. Were you doing stand-up while you were studying neuroscience nope, in university? Not at, all, not at all. But what I did do is I went to a lot of comedy clubs when I was in the UK. I think game-changing experience for me was to go to the Edinburgh Fringe. And what happens in the Edinburgh Fringe is there's a whole month, and they have all kinds of performances around the city. So you can just walk into any random bar, and maybe there's stand-up, and you get to hear people. Bomb and people do extremely well, and it's such an eye-opening experience for people who just watch stand-up on YouTube or on Netflix. Because I think it's really watching people bomb that gets you thinking: Why are their jokes bombing? Because I can hear what they're trying to do, but it's not working. And then that's when you start realizing: Okay, so these are the things you're not supposed to do, and the lines you're not supposed to cross. So, have you ever bombed then? Of course, I bomb all the time. Bombing is such a natural thing to happen. You have to bomb. Like I would say, maybe twenty percent of the jokes work on your first try. If you're gonna come up with an hour-long special, then eighty percent of the full sixty minutes bombs, and you have to try to polish that into something that works. So, what did your parents think about you not doing your PhD? At first, they were really pushy. They're like, "Hey, you said you're gonna apply, so where is that application format?" But I think towards the end, they're kind of realizing on their own, like, "Oh, yeah, he's not made for academics and stuff." <laughs> After he's studied neuroscience for four yeah, years, exactly. you're not made for academics. That's what my dad always said. He was like, "Ah, I knew you wouldn't do a PhD from the start." And weren't you studying your undergrad at arguably two of the best schools in Europe? Um, and you're not. You don't have the head for for studying. I completely yeah, understand. Not, your parents not made fit for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you ever do jokes in French? I have actually written one joke in French, but it's just a really silly joke. And I wrote this joke in the first month I got to Paris. I remember it's like Deca origine du. Where do poker cards come from? But I was trying to do a pun on Descartes, the philosopher. Ah, I see. I see. And, and actually, it's fun because they both come from France. 
Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So, so I see it. Yeah. So have you said it to a French audience? Yeah. yeah. I've said it to my classmates, and they're like, "Yeah, well, I guess so." So hopefully we have a lot of French listeners. And hopefully <laughs> hope so. they'll give you a readout on how that joke will play. Yeah. In, in the the mood, <laughs> yeah so why don't you tell me where you're originally from? I was born in Taipei. I went to Cambridge, Massachusetts when I was two years old, and then I came back to Taipei when I was nine. Okay. So I've spent six or seven years in the states. So what made your family move to Cambridge? Uh, my dad was studying for his PhD. Ah, uh, okay. He has the study brain. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why don't we talk about the night-night show? Sure. Okay, so how did that start? So there was this phase where I was working and doing stand-up comedy as a hobby. And eventually, because one of my clips went viral, more and more people started coming to the shows, and I would start having like endorsements and stuff. I started realizing that, hey, this can actually become my real job. Because it's actually making a lot more than my day job. What was your day job? I was writing scripts for a YouTube channel called oh. Taiwan Bar. So it's an educational animation company. We make cartoons, and they're supposed to teach people about like economics and law. It's kind of like the crash course of Taiwan. I was writing the scripts, so like at what point, what character comes out and says something. So scriptwriter as a day job. So you started the night night show on crowdfunding. Yes. Correct. So it was you who really realized, wow, there's a place for this in Taiwan. Yeah, I founded this company called Satire with my ex-boss. So my co-founder right now used to be my boss. At first, our goal as a company was to make the Comedy Central of Taiwan. So we would want to have different kinds of improv sketches and late night shows. Whatever Comedy Central does, we want to do. The first experiment we did was a late night show because we thought that was the most translatable. Since I do stand up comedy, I guess the monologues are sort of similar to a stand up bit. So that's the first show that we tried to piece together, and that started in August last year. And what's the reception been to it? So I think when we launched the pilot episode, people had really really high expectations. So all the comments for the pilot episode were, "This thing has the potential to be something great, but right now it's not there yet." So these are the positive comments. And then the negative comments were like, "Why are you trying to rip off Western culture late night shows? You're not funny. Why are you doing this? Who are you?" So those are the negatives. But I think. All in all, both positive and negative comments had a really high expectation, and they both showed interest in seeing this kind of show exist or improve in Taiwan. So, what changes did you make to make it appeal to a larger audience? We tried to play around with different stuff, and the hard part is the only way we can know what. Is successful is to actually launch a next episode. So after a week of negative comments, we're like, okay, so this doesn't work. Next week we'll try something else. So I think in the end we found out several formulas that work. Like singing works wonders for some reason. I would love to hear you sing. Because <laughs> there's actually this candidate that was running for Taipei mayor.、Mm -hmm. He made a song about himself, and it has this jingle like down. So we thought that was really funny because it's not aesthetically appealing as other songs would be, and it's a song about himself. So we took the same tune and we like took the opportunity and the liberty to sing about something that's more worthy of praise, and we sang about the Taipei Rail Station's bento boxes. <laughs> 
Those are amazing, yeah, I have to say. Exactly. Yes. I'm happy that you're singing about that because I love them. And they're cheap too. So if those bento boxes were running for Taipei Mayor, I would actually vote for them. Do you tape every day? No, we tape every week, every Wednesday. But I think season two, if there is one, is going to be on Saturday. So every Saturday. Are you very much hands-on in the creating of your show? Or do you mostly rely on uh, you know, the editing team and, and things to create your show for you? I think I single-handedly... <laughs> deal with the whole show. There's a Ghibli exposition in the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall. For their animations, he would draw a sketch and then he would leave it for the other animators to finish. But whereas in my show, it's completely the other way around. So my writers, they give me these joke premises and then I have to finish the joke. That's what happens. I'm doing all the hard work. Plus, I write the scripts, I perform, and then I post-edit half of the videos that go online. And what's harder, doing a late-night show or doing stand-up? It has to be late-night show, like, hands down, because it's just a different league. When you're doing stand-up, it's just you and your script and the audience, but all you need to do is just say stuff and maybe have some facial expressions. That's it. But when you're doing a late-night show, first of all, there's the guest, right? So you have to interact with the guest. You don't know what the guest is about to say, for the most part, and then you have to improvise on that. It's kind of like doing improv, with someone that's not trained in improv. But there's other aspects as well. We have three cameras. You need to mentally think which camera has to do what thing at what time. So it's kind of like directing a movie. So now you have a lot of fans of your show. Yeah, a lot, maybe. It's like a third of a million. It's not that much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah no, kind of, okay. Yeah. <laughs> You've had a lot of cool guests on your show. Yes, I'm very fortunate. Tell me, who are you the most nervous to have on your show? I would say the, the current Taipei mayor. He doesn't like answering the same question twice. So we actually rehearsed the whole interview with him, like half an hour before the show. And he was giving hilarious answers before we went on air. And he was like throwing jokes here and there. And then he went on stage. I asked the same questions. He's like, um, this is not really like interesting. I was like, I already told you backstage. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing? So it was an interview that was supposed to last for maybe 12 minutes. And then we just ran through all the questions in less than four. And I was left out to dry. I was like, what am I going to ask him now? And I've heard from other people, like people who work for him or people who've interviewed him. They're like, that is so what he would do. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't ask him the same question twice. I think the longest question he answers was like, so if you don't get elected for the next term, what are you going to do? Are you going to go back to be a doctor? And he's like, maybe. Who knows? We'll see. Like, yeah, thanks. Thanks for the uh, very detailed answer right there. Can you tell us about any new guests who you have coming on your show? Oh, I think this is supposed to be like super confidential. But I can say for season two, the night night show, one of our guests is going to be the biggest person in politics that you can ever think of. In Taiwan. Yeah. And he or she will be on the show. Tell me, how do you come up with your material? It's mostly from stuff that really happens to me. When I'm walking on the street, I just see little things that I think have this spark. Like, okay, this could be a bit. And it's not even that special. It could be really ordinary. For example, I'm touring universities right now. I'm performing an hour long in different universities. And last week, one of the universities gave me one of their t-shirts of their university. And they gave me an M size, like a medium. So I saw the M and I wear S, right? I wear small. And I saw also in their mind, they think I'm an M and not an S. And that has a double entendre with the S and M, like BDSM oh, yeah, culture. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, oh, they think I'm an M, but I'm like super <laughs> S. It's not an interesting event 
right? I just got a T-shirt. That's all that happened. Yeah. But I just see these little things, and I'm like, okay, that that could be a bit. What I always wondered was, does this stuff really happen to them? Because some of these jokes ah. seem so outrageous. <laughs> but I mean, I guess you have to kind of plan your old thing. But I can't believe that everything that they say happens to them. Yeah, most of my jokes have a real setup, but the punchline is fake, or the punchline is just some kind of interpretation I made out of、uh, what happens in reality. Because in reality, there are a lot of things that are ambiguous and vague. You don't know how to make sense of this thing. So, for example, like you're seeing this inventions, like people have these rings on their phone cases now. I so, have one. Yeah, yeah. When I first saw that thing, I didn't know how to make sense of it because people told me that it was an anti-theft device. But it's not because the sticker falls off. So just okay, you know, yeah. yeah. But that was what people were telling me, and I was like, okay, so how do I make sense of this, right? Because、uh, when I was studying in the UK in London, the way people snatch your phones is they ride on motorcycles and then they just rip your phone away from your hand. So how's that little ring gonna stop them from tearing away your phone? You're not only gonna lose your phone, you're gonna lose your finger. So this is me just making sense of that product. But it, it has a potential to become a joke, right? Because if your middle finger Is ripped off, then you don't even have a finger to give them. Were people telling you as you were growing up that you should be stand-up comedian? No, no. I've always been the super diligent and quiet kid in class. <laughs> When I was in college, I was the kid that always sat in the front row and I was raising my hand and asking questions. But you don't have a studious brain at all. I can see where your dad gets. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, who are your comedic inspirations, and what comedians do you look up to? The first stand-up comedian I've ever watched was Russell Peters. And this is 2006, when my first year in high school. One of my classmates also grew up overseas. He just came to me with his MP3, and he was like, "Listen to this." I didn't even have an image to look at. He was just like, "Listen to this, because it's hilarious." And I was like, "Okay." And at that time, there was no people translating any stand-up bits. I didn't even know this form of performance existed. So that's the first time I've ever listened to stand-up comedy. I thought it was hilarious. I was laughing on the ground in the classroom, and then that really started my whole journey into googling all different comics that have ever existed and watching all of their sets. But I think right now my all-time favorite comedian is George Carlin. Yeah, has to be George Carlin. No runner-up because <laughs> he can deal with difficult. Topics like he talks about the death penalty and white privilege, stuff that is still relevant today, and he does it in such a elegant and humorous way. Let's talk about negative comments. Okay. Do you get a lot of them? Is your life dictated by haters? Uh, yeah, very much so. <laughs> um, I I take in one or two negative comments when I wake up, and then. Like three more with my lunch, but I try to break it down. I try to rationalize where all this negativity is coming from. When you get a lot of negative comments, you start to realize that the majority of people are dumb, and they don't know what they're talking about. The reason why they have the confidence to say such things is purely because of their ignorance. A topic that I sort of mentioned earlier is people confuse stand-up comedy with talk shows. So when we launched the Night Night Show, people would compare this weekly talk show to Kevin Hart's Netflix specials. Why aren't you as funny as Kevin Hart? And could you answer that question? Why aren't you well, as funny as Kevin Hart? Yeah, I could think of a couple of reasons,、um, but I think the main reason is because they have the wrong expectation. When Kevin Hart launches a special, it's a year's work, right? It's 
he only needs to work on those 60 minutes every year. But when we're launching a weekly show, it's 60 minutes every week. And they are expecting the same level of hilarity. It's crazy. Plus, you know, you're much younger than him. No, wait, how old are you? 28. Yeah, you're much younger than him. Oh, yeah. Actually, the most frequent comparison is Conan O'Brien, because he's the most known late-night talk show host in Taiwan. And people are like, this doesn't even compare to Conan's show. Some people defend for me. They're like, oh, when Conan started off. He also started when he was 28. And I think the first two years... Conan was also said by the critics to be like very unfunny and they didn't see a career in this. But Conan's show, I don't know if these people have noticed, they have approximately 180 people working for him. How many people do you have working for you? I have four writers and (laughs) I think there's one person in the graphic department. (laughs) Yeah, he himself is a department. We have one guy that does editing and that's it. And there's me, so a group of seven or eight people. What are you doing now? What are your next shows coming up? And I hear that you are doing something with Jim Gaffigan. Can oh, yeah. you talk about that? My next shows coming up are not that important because we sold out the tickets. <laughs> it's going to be in the Red Theater in Ximending. It's going to be the same act that I did two weeks ago in the National Theater. So I performed in the National Theater. did an hour there. Another thing that my company is trying to do is to bring in foreign comics from overseas and in january we just had a jim jeffries show and in march we have jim gaffigan that's coming to taipei people in taiwan don't actually know who he is and people say that he's too clean like the thing that makes him special is he can be super funny and not be obscene you can tell from gaffigan's writing his writing is amazing you're not supposed to do this but just tear down his bits word for word and you can see how succinct and how like economic his jokes are they don't have a slight word that's too much to upcoming comics or people that want to do stand-up or people who want to make a type of night show that you have do you have any advice to give for people who want to do stand-up i would encourage everyone just to go to an open mic and try your five minute set out and then you get to realize how drastically harder it is to be funny in front of a group of strangers compared to being funny around your friends because it's like totally different story. But just get on stage. Because if you don't get on stage, you'll never know what it's like. Maybe you're super funny. Maybe you're the next George Carlin and Dave Chappelle. That might happen. So just go on stage. Get on stage. Bombing is something that happens 80% of the time. Just keep trying. How long does it take you to write a joke? How long do you practice it? And then how long until you premiere it? How long it takes to write a joke depends really on the joke itself. Some jokes just write themselves. And it's just something that happened in real life. Other jokes, like maybe I'll have some thought about the high price of the apartments in Taipei. I'll try to turn that into a bit. I have something to say about the low birth rate in Taiwan. And then I have to craft it into a joke. That takes longer. But I think on average, three to four weeks is how long it takes to master a joke and then premiere it on stage. Because every word and every phrase matters. And what we do is sort of like a scientist. Every time we go on stage, I know in my mind what phrase I'm going to take out or put in a different place, or which two sentences I'm going to put in a different order, A, B, or B, A. And then I observe the outcome, I decide which one is better, and then next week I do another little tweak and see if it goes better. Okay, well, thank you so much, Brian. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Taiwan Talk. I would like to thank Brian again for joining me this week. Don't forget to tune in next week for another all-new episode. Remember to take care of yourselves. I'm Sheree Felice.